I'm Sean Lukasik, and you're listening to the Paisanos Podcast. I'm excited this week to introduce Rebecca Ryan. Rebecca is an economist and futurist and founder of Next Generation Consulting, where she and her team help clients create brighter futures through planning and foresight. Rebecca is the best-selling author of three books about the future of local government, America's future leaders, and getting inside the head of the next generation. She's been named to the top 100 most influential people by Accounting Today and Entrepreneur of the Year by the U.S. Association for Small Business and Entrepreneurship. I learned about Rebecca's work over 15 years ago when I was in charge of marketing for a workforce development agency, and I was immediately refreshed by her ideas and her approach. More recently, I was surprised to learn we had a mutual friend and so grateful for the opportunity to invite her onto the podcast. But I never imagined such a great conversation filled with so much insight and vulnerability, and I'm really excited to share it with you today. If you're a fan, please subscribe, leave a review, and please share it with your friends and your paisanos. We're still in the early stages of this podcast and would love your help getting it out there. Thank you so much for listening. Here is Rebecca Ryan. Rebecca Ryan, thank you so much for joining me on the Paisanos podcast. It's really an honor to talk with you today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be here with you as well. Now, I don't know if you remember, but um, I first uh, was um, caught up on your work right after you wrote Live First, Work Second, um, back in, I believe, 2007 or eight. And you came to the Southern Finger Lakes. And uh, at the time, I was working with a workforce development agency and looking at some of the ways that we can make our region more desirable to live in. And the words that you were sharing and the things that you were talking about at that time felt so real to me. And it felt like, oh, finally, someone is talking about this stuff. Um, wh- wh- why don't you start just by talking a little bit about the work that you do um, as, as a planner, as a futurist, um, and how that's evolved over the years? Yeah, you bet. So, um, First of all, I'm so glad it resonated with you. I think one of the most important things we do for each other as humans is, you know, share ourselves in a way where people can say, me too. You know, I mean, we that's such a strong human and humane thing to do. I'm glad it resonated. So at that time, um, I was really a generational expert. You know, I was talking about how to attract and keep the next generation to our cities and communities and regions. And it was really a script flip of what it had been because, you know, for our parents, you you found a job and then you just lived in the place where the job was. And our generation, Generation X, was the first to sort of say, eh, I'd rather pick a place to live and then find a job where quality of life, quality of community, um, became very important, especially if you had sort of rare and valuable skills, if you were a computer programmer, a member of the creative class and so forth. So that was a that was a big shift. And I was out there talking about it because it was my experience too. And it was the experience of my generation. And then um, when the Great Recession happened, I went back to school 
and I got my degree in strategic foresight from the University of Houston, a professional certificate from the University of Houston. And I repositioned myself as a futurist where I wasn't just studying demographics anymore. I also started to look at changes in technology and changes in the economy, changes in the environment, and what that was going to mean for people who were trying to make great places to live. And one of the things that it seems you've discovered more recently in the research and the work that you do is this thing you're calling the strategy paradox, where um, you've discovered that executives and and leaders are spending no more than five minutes per day actually sitting down and strategizing, which which they say is a big part of what they should be doing. Can you first kind of introduce us to the strategy paradox for people who um, don't really know what it is? Yes. So um, it was basically a two-part question that I, I mean, honestly, I asked it to a bunch of executives during a keynote that I was giving. It was, we were doing some polling questions and I just wanted to get a sense like how much people spent thinking about the future. So it wasn't intended at first to be like, a sociological assessment. You know, it was just like I was interacting with this audience and I wanted to know what they were thinking about. And after the results came from that keynote, I turned to my team. I said, we need to put a survey in the field. And basically the survey had two parts to the question. So listeners, question one, is strategy part of your job? Do you have responsibility for strategy? And in the survey results, over 95% of our respondents said, yes, strategy is part of my job. And then we asked them how they spend their time. And they told us. And what we sussed out was the average respondent who said strategy was part of their job was spending between a minute and a half and four and a half minutes a day thinking strategically about the future. And we call this the strategy paradox because it is a paradox. It's like, this is part of my job, but I don't have time to do it mm-hmm. or I don't take time to do it. What what have you thought about or what what has that led you to thinking about in terms of just the implications of that? You know, like <laughs> what does our future look like if nobody's strategizing. Yeah. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, well, of course this is what we get mm-hmm. when nobody is thinking about what's coming or worse, nobody's thinking about secondary and tertiary implications of decisions mm-hmm. that they're making. Um, it's my, my birth mom calls it mental gymnastics. She's like, people just don't do their mental gymnastics anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think it's true. I mean, that same survey showed that the vast majority of leaders' time is spent doing tasks like responding to email, mm-hmm. putting out fires, attending meetings, doing the things that are basically right in front of their nose. And those things are very alluring. And often, I mean, this is like a small thing, but there are lights behind them. You know, our phones have lights, our computers have lights, everything we do digitally is lit up. And our mammalian brains are trained to pay attention to that, that there's a sense of Mm -hmm. urgency with things that are lit up. And so the idea of going analog, like I do once a quarter, where I just, you know, go into nature with a pen and a piece of paper and some questions for myself, Mm -hmm. who doesn't like people don't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking for this podcast, especially in terms of 
internet culture and the role it may play in um, the way that people spend their time, whether it's at work or outside of work, to be honest. Um, And, you know, we're talking or you're talking, I should say, about strategy and, and knowing that it's a part of your responsibility and yet only spending a fraction of time on that piece of the responsibility. Do you, do you feel like those lights that you mentioned, our digital screens, our internet culture, is it all responsible for this strategy paradox in any way? I, I think so. I mean, um, here's what I know is research tells us, I mean, we should get seven and a half to eight hours of sleep every night. That leaves 16 hours. Um, we know that um, we have a certain amount of willpower to use every day. This is why President Obama standardized his wardrobe so he wouldn't have to choose. He was either going to do the blue suit or the not blue suit. Um, he got criticized for the tan suit. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, you know, we only have so many credits of, um, you know, willpower and decision making that we can make every day. And then you think about the amount of information that we could, that we could process. And it's an impossible task. It's a Sisyphean, how do you say it? Who's the Sisyphus pushed the mountain up boulder up the hill? Yeah. So what I'm really interested in, and this is why we put that survey in the field is I was interested in how leaders use their attention, time and attention. I guess I'm just parsing this for myself as we're together, but like, how they use their time, how they use their focus, how they use their attention. And we are grossly underutilizing leaders if what they're doing is spending 67% of their time answering email. Mm-hmm. That Those are not necessarily higher order thinking skills. Um, so, so, yeah, I think as the internet has scaled, as the amount of time we spend online has scaled, as the amount of great entertainment scales, mm-hmm. um, there's no way we can keep up with it all. And we shouldn't, you know, we should spend, uh, we should spend the appropriate amount of time thinking about the right things in a useful way. Can I ask you a quick question, Sean? Yeah, when please. You, when you describe internet culture, what do you mean by that? Well, that is a good question. The way that I think about it is that we as a society more and more are living our lives in front of more people than we ever have before. Um, we're talking about our lives in an arena that's way larger than the kitchen table we're used to. Um, We're sharing photos and details about our lives. We are um, being told or or at best maybe summoned (laughs) to uh, what we should be paying attention to. Um, Email certainly is one of those things. Every app that gets downloaded on our phones uh, comes with its own set of default notifications. And, you know, right down to the the conversation that we're having today um, is possible because of the Internet. And so I don't want to necessarily code Internet culture in a negative light because I think it gives us so many opportunities that we didn't have um, 
you know, even 10 years ago when uh, internet culture was still prevalent, but, but we were learning more about the ways that we interact with it. Um, but that's what I mean when I say internet culture, it's that we're living in a culture where the internet is a minute by minute reality. Mm, I see. And I think in some ways, uh, it's about access. Um, you know, the way that people have access to us, um, and maybe expect us to answer, respond, um, quickly and the way that we have access to just about anything we want to watch or consume at any given moment. Boredom is not a thing anymore. People aren't just bored. Um, and I think that's a, a symptom or an indicator of internet culture. Right on. Well, I know, I mean, just very personally, um, I have, I mean, I've been on probably a 10 year experiment with myself on how to not do those things. Like Mm -hmm. I have, um, I have a hate, hate relationship to email. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't wait to finish Cal Newport's book, um, about, uh, the end of email. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean this, like you say, access, it's created all of these unintended consequences. And what's so just chilling to me is, well, two things I think around internet culture. One is when the CEO of Netflix says that he's competing with sleep for viewers. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That feels like a problem. And then the second thing was just knowing how many of the experts and creators of social media, when interviewed in the social dilemma, said they absolutely wouldn't allow their children to have access to social media. It's like they know that they've created a poison um, and they will protect their own children from that poison. Yeah, it's uh, that that documentary is terrifying (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, You know, I I don't mean to laugh. It it really is terrifying. And I I uh, I watched that and sort of remember sitting back in my seat when it was over and just trying to take in what the implications of what they were what they were sharing. Um, I mean, they use terms like civil war and things, and they weren't using those terms lightly. And, and to your point, these were people who are, or were, were once formally uh, in the industry and responsible for overseeing these, the algorithms you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> hard yeah, left turn. Right. <laughs> uh, well, well, maybe and not so much. You, 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 your most recent book is called Regeneration, and you talk about being in this season of winter in the United States, particularly. Um, and I think your original estimate is that we would enter spring in 2020, which, which is. Well, come and I, gone. I, yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's come and gone. And geez, when you mention the year 2020, there's so much that just comes up for people. Yeah. Um, for those who are just listening to the podcast and not watching, uh, the, the forehead wipe there was a strong indication of what the year 2020 was like. Um, do you, do you still think we entered spring in 2020? No. 
No. I mean, after I wrote that book, so basically the book is about um, that about every 20 years, America cycles from spring to summer to fall to winter, and they all have their different characteristics. Mm -hmm. Um, Winter being a time when things feel really frozen and stuck. Mm -hmm. And we've been through three other winters, Um, the American Revolution, um, uh, the Civil War, and the Great Depression. And so I estimated that we had... um, entered our fourth winter when the World Trade Centers were hit mm-hmm. 2001. And so we, therefore, we'd be out of it about 20 years later in 2020. And I did some additional research after the book was published, like five or six years after the book was published, I was doing some additional research. And Neil Howe, who is by all rights, one of the most prolific generational writers and experts, um, he said that he thought 2009, the Great Recession, was actually when we entered our fourth winter. Mm. And so, if if we accept that, and I'm willing to, like if we say, okay, that's when we entered winter, then we're it's actually gonna we're gonna be out of it in 2029-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a few more years. But you know, I have to say that I do I do think that number one, the national news isn't all the news. Um, I heard a longtime BBC um, reporter say on a podcast last night, she said, let's face it, our job in news is to um, create fear and, mm-hmm. and, um, and desolation. And I thought, hmm, well, that's working based on the number of people who now have anxiety or depress- depression disorders. I myself went through a very terrible depress- depression um, a couple winters ago. So hmm. these things are real. Um, and the, but if you look at the local level, if you look at like what's happening in your neighborhoods and in your communities and take your eyes off the news headlines, there's so much good that's happening. People are finding such creative ways to make meaning, to innovate, to um, support each other, to create community. And I think, you know, all change starts from the bottom up. Even Condoleezza Rice said recently, you know, she's like, if you want to see what the future of government is going to look like, you have to look at the local level. Um, and so I, I remain an optimist about this. And I, re- you know, I think when you, whether you think about millennials really coming into power over the course of the next decade and boomers finally giving up the mic, fingers crossed and sitting mm-hmm. down, um, you know, this, this kind of gerontocracy that is America's federal <laughs> you know, leadership structure. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a there's a lot of life uh, and a lot of potential underneath that increasingly fragile crust of leadership, mm-hmm. and that t- the time is coming. It always comes. So, so your theory obviously uh, uh, then takes us into spring next, um, and I know that that you in in your TED talk and in, in your book you shared some examples of what spring means and and why we're headed in that direction and some of the stories of optimism that you have. Um, I think local politics is actually a really interesting example and. Um, I can tell you here locally, it's been interesting following school board elections, city council conversations. Um, The people who want to have the same conversations that are happening at a national level um, are just sort of being 
laughed at or, you know, like there are some people taking it very seriously, of course, but there's a lot of eye rolling as well. That is to say, we don't want that here. Um, we don't we don't want to talk about banning books in our local school district. Let the people in Florida sort the head out. Um, we don't want to talk about, um, you know, anti uh, DEI initiatives or anti LGBTQ initiatives. Um, let that happen on national news channels and let us protect our kids and the resources that they have access to. So I'm optimistic that here in our little town, those conversations are moving in a, in a good direction, but I'm curious from your perspective and having done so much research on this, what some of the stories are that give you optimism as we move toward spring in this uh, analogy? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I love that you're seeing that in your in your home community as well. And, you know, I think we have to remind ourselves that um, part of what's like broken right now, and that needs to be maybe needs to break all the way down, break down before you break through, is that we have uh, like a system right now where at the federal level, our representatives aren't actually representing us. I mean, if you if you look at the percentage of Americans who favor gun reform, right? Well, we can't seem to pass that at the mm-hmm. federal level because we're not being represented. So what we know is that as you come closer to your own zip code, your access to your representatives goes up. You know, you run into them. I ran into our mayor like downtown a couple of days ago, like not in a like, hey, mayor way, but just in a like, oh, there she, you know, there she is. She's like in, in my community. And there's as an economist, there's something to this. When when Adam Smith wrote um the book in which he talked about the free market and the invisible hand. Mm -hmm. What he meant by that was when you're in a local economy, um, you are not going to screw your customer because you are going to have to run into them again. Mm -hmm. And we are a social species and our reputations matter. And we want to be accepted um, by our, you know, by our, the other members of our social species. So the invisible hand is that desire that we all have to belong. And as you get further and further away from where decisions are made, the, the ability to exercise that invisible hand goes away because you don't know who to be mad at, you know, because it's, it's this, it's this power from elsewhere. So yes, at the local level. So some of the things I'm seeing that I'm really excited about are this for everything that seems to be breaking down, new things are emerging in their place. So as an example, over the last 10 years, 50% fewer people are employed as journalists. Like if you look in the, you know, uh, employee codes. Mm -hmm. But Axios, as an example, has made a commitment to create these daily newsletters, and they're starting in all the major markets. They also have a national one. Um, There's another um, news outlet that has started up called Semaphore. It's a beautiful product. It does a really nice job creating global news. They have attracted amazing um, editorial talent, great journalists. And so, even though 
like the newspapers that we maybe have have been used to are closing their newsrooms or decreasing their newsrooms, we're seeing these other really interesting ways that news is coming forward. So that that would be one example. The other example that I really love to share, I was raised in a in a conservative Christian church. And um, you know, we know that there are um large conservative Christian leadership groups that have been influenced by their children mm-hmm. and are taking a very proactive environmental stance to taking care of the environment, as an example. Whereas in the past, many Christians just get lumped in with all Republicans who um, even in private will tell you that they're worried about the environment as well, but publicly might grandstand mm-hmm. a bit about it. So, there are there are fissures opening where innovation and insight and completely different and new ways of doing things are emerging. And this is what normally happens as winter turns to spring. Mm -hmm. The reason why I love following you reading, listening to your conversations, which by the way, um, you know, visit RebeccaRyan.com. There are lots of links to different podcast appearances and, um, of course, the books, the blog itself. Um, a lot of these ideas are there um, in writing or in audio form. Um, what I love is that you really do have this optimistic view about our future, about the world that we live in today. Um, and the the indicators... Um, the signals that you look for um, seem to give you a lot of optimism about the direction that we're heading in as a society and here in the United States. Um, So I very much appreciate that. And I just wanted to share that with you. Um, One of the the, uh, concepts that you discussed in that blog is this idea of the three horizons framework. Um, And that is uh, another well, I'll let you explain it, but but I understand it as a framework that sort of talks about going through a transition period. So would you mind first talking about the framework? And I, I have a couple of questions about um, what sort, sort of patterns are coming out of that. You bet. Um, so the Three Horizons framework, I mean, if you kind of zoom out... Um, And if so, listeners, viewers, if you can imagine a sine wave, right, a a wave that uh, undulates from high to low, from high to low, from high to low, this is how sound waves are happening Mm -hmm. right now, right? Um, If you're hearing my voice, that is a wave that's happening. Um, It's uh, spring in North America, and we've got our seeds started. They'll eventually get planted. They will grow to a maximum level of productivity, hopefully, if the bugs don't get them and the rabbits don't get them. <laughs> we will harvest their fruit. They will die in the fall. We will trim them back. The whole garden will regenerate over the winter, and off we'll go. So there's this, there's a rhythm that is very natural that is up and down and up and down. So this Three Horizons model is really just taking three time horizons and looking at them as waves. So today, whenever you're listening to this, you are living in probably more than one wave of change. But um, let's take an organization as an example. If an organization or a community hired us to come in and do the Three Horizons workshop, we would start by asking everybody in that workshop, okay, this community today is thriving 
based on a set of assumptions. Like, what are the assumptions that have made this community what it is today? And we list all those assumptions out and we ask, okay, will those assumptions be true for forever? And of course, no, they won't be true for forever. At some point, their margin of return will decrease, will be on the bottom sign of the bottom edge of that sine wave. Mm-hmm. So then that's horizon one, the horizon we're living in today. Horizon three, then we visit next. And horizon three is the far future. So maybe we've said that horizon three is 20 years from now. So the question that we ask is, what are the seeds of change that we can already see today that may come to their full fruition 20 years from now. And I may have the time horizon of 20 years wrong for this, but you know, thinking about internet culture, we know that Europe is requiring certain privacy protections for the internet. Those aren't here yet in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in 20 years time, they will be here. In 20 years time, Google may be broken up. Facebook may be broken up. Amazon may be broken up. Apple may be broken up. You know, the big tech leaders who have driven so much value but also um, created some injury uh, in economies and in societies. They won't be in the current form that they're in today. What other seeds of the future are we starting to see? So in that way, we start to imagine how Horizon 3 will unfold over time. Then you get to Horizon 2. Horizon 2 is the near future. Maybe it's the 10-year future. It it crests between the time of today when Horizon 1 is cresting and the far future when Horizon 3 is cresting. And this is the place for entrepreneurs. This is the place to run pilot projects. This is the place where you you look at what's happening today and you say, we know that the way we do things today isn't always going to work. Let's run a different experiment based on what we think is going to be happening in Horizon 3. How can we cross that messy middle, cross that chasm between Horizon 1 and Horizon 3? So if Horizon 2 is where the entrepreneurs live who are like trying to change things, and Horizon 3 is the the horizon for the far out visionaries, right? The people who almost seem a little crazy today. Mm-hmm. And Horizon 1 is the people who are currently in power, like they are managing things today. You can kind of see how these three horizons um, all work independently. But if you zoom out far enough, you can see how your community or your organization can ride all of these waves of change. I love that as a framework. And and the way that you described it really gets me thinking about so many, um, uh, well, timelines, you know, big and small. Um, I think when you when you described it in the blog, you were talking about living in, in this time between COVID or, or pre-COVID and post-COVID, which, which, you know, Horizon 3 would be maybe when it's labeled as endemic and we're just living with it. Um, but for now, we're in this time in between. And, and that got me thinking about so many opportunities and so many ways that we could ride that second wave, as you just described, um, to 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 position ourselves to be in a, a better place when when it is endemic. Um, are there are there any things that you're doing in your work today to position yourself for a, a post COVID world? Um, th- yes, there are things. I mean, during COVID, we made a commitment as a team that we were going to be great at doing virtual workshops. We believed that there was actually a way to have a virtual experience that could be even more equitable 
than in-person workshops. Because, you know, in-person workshops, like you don't have a chat feature. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so we just said, like, let's figure out how to do this really well so that our ability to collaborate and design and innovate doesn't have to be limited. Our our ability to do futures work doesn't have to be limited based on whether we're in person or, or not in person. So that's one thing we did. You know, the other thing that um, I'm doing just very personally, you, you know, when you were talking about what can we do to ride the wave um, to the, to the next wave is I, I, and I know I'm not alone, um, but I've really rethought and redesigned my life around my relationships. And I know a lot of us have done that. Uh, a lot of us have said, wow, when faced with the giant billboard that says you will die, because that's what COVID did for many of us is like, mm-hmm. oh my God, <laughs> this is killing people. It's killing mm-hmm. people I love. It caught, this is, you. you we cannot underestimate this. The nation that invented workaholism has had record high quits rates. And everyone's like, where are all the workers? When are they coming back? And the answer is many of them are starting their own things. Mm -hmm. You know, they are designing their work around their lives, around the other things that matter to them. And so I've, I've done some of that, you know, I'm, um, I'm working less. I'm trying to work more smartly. Um, I'm spending more time with the people, especially the little people in my life that I love most, spending far more time with my friends, creating new, new rituals, and new memories. I'm kind of trying to claw back my own self-care and my own health and sleep um, and well-being. And that has a net plus for society, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, you know, we're in this in-between stage right now, too, where I think people have kind of forgotten how to people, you know, like we've kind yeah. of forgotten how to be together. So this summer, I'm going to restart my pink flamingo parties, which is when um, I put a pink flamingo in my front yard. And my neighbors know because I, I send around little tear sheets that say, hey, bring a dish to pass on these Friday nights. I do one a month. Um but we'll be gathering all the neighbors together again for an outdoor potluck. And all I do is start my grill. It's mm-hmm. Wisconsin. I grill bratwurst and we just host the party. Everybody else brings a dish to pass and, you know, we get to know our neighbors a little bit better and people who've moved in and so forth. But it's a small way to help us come together, come back together. Cause I think people are aching for it. So I'm putting out the pink flamingo challenge to every listener <laughs> to this podcast. Um, you know, just oh, get your grill going. Uh, and and host a, host a neighborhood get together one time this summer or fall because um, people are really aching for this. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that you're someone who's really been intentional about not letting uh, the screen take things over for you. That you have uh, some time every quarter where you you know get out with, uh, I believe you called it analog time with, with a paper and a pencil and, and just write down your thoughts and experience the real world around you. But I think for a lot of people, um, and maybe some who might be listening to this, uh, this time between pre COVID and post COVID, um, is a time where they're thinking more deeply about that. Um, you know, Certainly during the height of the pandemic, um, 
use of digital media skyrocketed. Um, we we learned about addiction in a variety of forms, um, and I I believe that addiction to phones and social media is is a real thing, um, and I believe that it's something that is a, a true health problem in in our country and it's part of the reason why I'm doing this. I wonder if you have any recommendations for people who might be in that transition period and thinking about um, this idea that you know pre-covid I wasn't really aware of how much I was using my phone or how much time I spent on social media or just time away from th- the real people in my life and as I look to that third horizon, um, bringing it back to the three horizons framework. I want to be someone who uses my phone less, who is more engaged in the real world. Um, having gone through that process yourself, I just wonder if that brings up any recommendations or suggestions that you might make or things that have worked for you. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is like not Rebecca Ryan, the futurist, Okay. You know, talking. This is like Rebecca Ryan, the flesh and blood person who's just trying to be a better version of herself week by week and month by month and be a good wife and a good friend and a good, you know, whatever. Um, so I, in August of 2020, I sat down and asked myself five questions and it, it's, they're going to sound a little macabre because they have to do with death, but it, it rang a bell in me of what really matters to me. And then I started to design, redesign my life, rethink my life. And it's taken, you know, years to like get to the point I'm at now. Cause I just had to iterate every quarter. I would just iterate, 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 but here were the five questions and they follow a pattern. Question one, if you knew that you were going to die one week from now, how would you spend your time? Question two, If you knew you were going to die in a month, how would you spend your time? Question three, if you knew you were going to die in one year, how would you spend your time? Question four, if you knew you were going to die in five years, how would you spend your time? And the fifth question is, you know you're going to die at some point not knowing how, how long that is, how do you want to spend your time? And these questions, and I, I ask them of myself when I need to, I don't do, I don't re-ask these questions every six months. I, re- I review them every quarter. And if I feel I need to update them, I will, because we change over time. Um, but they really told me what matters to me. And it is time with my people. I mean, you know, my family, my friends, um, I, I have created this term called my first ring friends. Like these are my 3am friends I would walk on hot coals for, mm-hmm. um, who I know they would take my call at 3am anyway. Um, and, and how can I design my time around deepening those relationships? And sometimes it's really simple things like, 
I have this, um, this time confetti list that I keep in my journal. And it's things that I can do with small scraps of time, like when you've got five minutes between meetings or whatnot. And on my time confetti list, I keep, <laughs> uh, you know, like the my first string, a list of my first string friends, and all the different ideas I can do, like send a stupid gif, um, <laughs> you know, tell them that I'm thinking about them, um, pick out a card and throw it in the mail, you know, just just things that I can, I can, um, be a good friend and be in better touch. So those five questions about, they help me to live as if I was dying and I'm not being dramatic. We are all dying. Mm -hmm. We don't know when our expiration date is, but to live like you're dying. And then you can, you can go even deeper on this. So I just read the happier hour book, the book happier hour. Mm -hmm. And one of the things she talks about in there is, um, to actually map out with the most important people in your life, how many more Christmases will you have? So my wife and I got married. um, Neither one of us were spring chickens. We got married rather recently and she's 10 years older than I am. And one of the, we love summer here in Madison. And I estimated the number of summers we had left when we were both able-bodied and it's fewer than I would like. Mm -hmm. And so that has just helped me, like, I'm not going to work my face off every summer. I want to spend more time with my wife in the summers. So these are the kinds of things that um, you you might not look at my diary and say, oh, you're living so much differently now, Rebecca, than you were four years ago. But I am living a lot differently now than I was four years ago with much more intention, with much more of a focus on what really matters and trying to line my time up behind that. I love that. And thank you, so much for sharing that. I mean, I think um, those are, that's such an important series of questions um, just to think through one time, but to go back to that and to take it to that, you know, that one extra step um, feels like uh, such a useful exercise. And I'm, first of all, congratulations. uh, And, um, thanks for sharing that just because I think it, it's a, it's, it's going to be a useful tool for me moving forward. Um, oh, I'm glad. Let me know. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> I, I will. I will. And uh, you, you said recently, um, that one of like the social, you, you, you're often paying attention to signals, weak signals. Um, and one of those social signals to you has been, um, a bit of, of, of like an alarm on mental health in this country as a result of, of the pandemic in many ways. Um, and uh, I wonder, is that what got you really thinking deeply about asking yourself those five questions or um, are those not related? No, they're, they're not necessarily related. You know, one did okay. not cause um, the other. The when I first when I first asked those five questions, I had been working through Greg McCown's book on essentialism and, mm. you know, really doing what's essential. I've always been a person who I say yes to everything. It's mm. like it's by it's like buying too many clothes and then like you can't get your closet door shut and you like have to you know force it shut with your shoulder. And yeah. so occasionally you've got to take everything out of the closet and look at it and say am I going to ever wear this stuff? Like what, what really matters? And the same thing with my life. I tend to, 
I tended to cram it with too much stuff. So these five questions were very clarifying for me about what should be in my the closet of my life and what shouldn't. But this notion of the, you know, the mental health bit, um, I think ties into what you were talking about internet culture, because, um, you know, before the show started, we were talking about your TED Talk from 2013. And you affirmed that what we do online cannot replicate what we do in person. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, the social isolation that we had to do to keep ourselves and each other safe during COVID was very necessary, but it came at a very high price. And I think depression and mental health is one of the long tales of COVID. I saw a statistic recently that only that one in seven American men says they have no friends. And I don't know if you've, the UK has done some great research on this. Maybe people have done research on it in the US as well. I just haven't seen it, but loneliness causes earlier death at a higher rate than obesity and heart disease. I mean, the comorbidity for death with loneliness is really something. And there is no reason for people to die deaths of loneliness. They have this thing in the UK called a silver line, silver reflecting like the color of my hair um, and, and, old, mine. Older, and yours and older <laughs> yeah. adults hair. And the idea is any any senior citizen in the UK who is feeling lonely can call the silver line and a volunteer will just talk with them. You know, I was just last night, I was talking to my college roommate. Um, it was her birthday. So I wanted to just call and check in. We had this great conversation. She's an educator and she was talking about some of the kids that she helps. She's a, she's a para helper in, in a elementary school. And she had read this little boy, a book. And um, he said, I love every word of this book. And then um, Kristen her nickname is Slim. Slim said, um, what did you love about the book? And he said, the story was so excellent. Will you read to me again? And so she was like, of course, I'll read to you again. And she said, you know what it is, is this kid is lonely. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. the story is is maybe part of it. But what are you doing when you're having a story read to you by an adult? You're usually on a lap. You know, you're safe. You're, mm-hmm. you're comfortable. You're being entertained. It's really intimate. And um, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, um, we all need that. You know, we all need somebody to take us by the hand here, 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 yeah. and to be, to be cared for. So this epidemic, epidemic of loneliness, I think is going to be another one of those signals, right? That's going to be a long tail of COVID. Yeah. And that was really the concept of paisanos that, that, that was a term that, um, paisano in, in Italian literally means, uh, someone who lives in the same town or the same neighborhood as you. Um, but of course we use it, uh, colloquially to, to sort of talk about our, our buds, the people who are our, family without being blood related, you know, our, our paisanos, those are the people that you'd walk through hot coals for, as you said. Um, and also those are the people who have, um, an effect on us that makes us physically healthier, that makes us mentally and emotionally healthier as you're, as you're describing. Um, and I think too often people turn to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and they comment on a photo or even if it's a direct message, even if there is some sort of one-on-one interaction, we don't see the same health implications of that. We don't see the same health benefits of those real-world relationships. So um, 
I think that's a good place to to end and, and uh, you know, hearing you talk about what's important to you and those relationships that you've worked so hard to build. Um, and uh, I hope that you're feeling um, mentally healthier and uh, physically healthier as a result of all of those things. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to to add? I know that there's so much that we could have talked about and there's so much work that you're doing, um, as we look to the future. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Well, I want to thank you because, um, Paisanos, I think is the word I'm going to start using for my first ring, you know, that my close in circle of people. (laughs) Um, so thank you for the background on that word. I I think that, you know, the one thing that I just want to like remind people is, and and this is like Rebecca as a two-legged, but also as a futurist is I always remind people that the future doesn't just happen to us. We also happen to the future and we have agency. You know, we do have agency, even if you feel like you're really stuck, right? In my, in my Zen training, we would, we would say, you've got choices. You can change your relationship to what's going on right? You can um, leave the situation, you know, um, or you can accept the situation. But all of those things, we are agents in our own lives and in the futures that we want to create and we want to build. So there's, um, you know, there's no room for us who want brighter futures to sit back and let somebody else do it. Like, host your own pink flamingo party. Like, it can be that simple. (laughs) I've written that down and, and, um, I plan on it actually. So thank you so much. Um, this conversation has been everything that I hoped it would be. And it's been a real honor talking with you. So thank you so much for your time. You're a generous host. Thank you, Sean. The Paisanos Podcast is produced by Creagent Marketing. It's written and hosted by me, Sean Lukasik. You can find our show notes at paisanospodcast.com or visit our YouTube page to watch the video version. If you have guest or topic ideas, email me at sean at paisanospodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>